Fantasy Animation is a completely free online educational resource dedicated to examining the relationship between fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. It is staffed by a volunteer army of academics and animators who give up their time to run the website so that our audience can be kept informed not just about the latest goings on in the world of all things that are drawn, imagined and sculpted, but to help inform them about the historical, political, ethical and aesthetic ramifications of what it means to make an animated fantasy. Check out our weekly blog posts containing insights on everything from the sexual identity of Spongebob Squarepants to how to make an animation on a pair of knickers. You can also access our archive of podcasts featuring Oscar-winning VFX supervisors, historians, classicists, animators and folklorists discussing their favourite examples of fantasy animation. To find out more, visit us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Reddit at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research, or visit fantasy-animation.org. I hope you enjoy the show. listeners and welcome to another episode of the fantasy animation podcast my magical power this week is that i am alex Sargent, and i am the quotidian chris holiday <laughs> quotidian realism magic all these things and more to come in this very special episode on encanto um the potentially oscar winning disney feature we don't know yet we're recording before oscar night but you're listening to this post oscar yeah, night yeah. so um you're in that you're in better knowledge than we are about that but um certainly um a big hit for the studio a sort of uh, post covid hit for the studio um we don't talk about bruno is uh, now apparently the best disney song ever written uh, there's lots to talk about on the episode um as a fantasy scholar and theorist i'm going to talk about the thorny problem of of fantasy representation in other cultures when fantasy is so much tied to the western context we've mentioned this on the podcast before we're going to mention magical realism even if we are to mention it just to ex- explain how this film isn't it yeah. um but we'd like to do that on the podcast a lot one of these days we should do an episode on it where something that is magical realism but right now it, it isn't going to be this episode uh we can talk about spectacle we can talk about the role of family lots to talk about and more how about you chris anything to talk about in terms of animation this week yes so it's a computer animated film so my my interest was peaked almost immediately i would say this is the best sequel to coco we've ever had so that's that's pleasing um i have things to say about um sentient houses in animation that have a kind of history in animation uh, i'm really interested in the use of music in the in the film kind of going back in, in some recent work looking at the the musical numbers of the of the renaissance period i'm i'm was struck here by the musical numbers that seem to take place in a particular kind of, of, of narrative space. Um, uh, and also, if we get a chance to talk about kind of gender, this idea of uh, a film that's about what it means to carry the weight, a film about being good enough. Um, uh, and yeah, tying that in, hopefully, to, to a Latin American history to which I am certainly a novice. So I'm really pleased that we've got our guest for this week. Yeah, and I should introduce our guest now. He's going to help us think our way through this movie. Um, uh Dolores Tierney. Uh, Dolores is head of film and professor at the University of Sussex, um, and she's published widely on Latin America and Latinx film and media um, in a variety of different academic anthologies and journals. 
Um, she is also uh, the author of Emilio Fernandez and New Transnationalisms in Contemporary Latin American Cinemas and the co-editor uh, of uh, Laxploitation, Exploitation Cinema and Latin America, as well as um, with Deborah Shaw and Anne Davis, uh, The Transnational Fantasies of Guillermo del Toro. So, Dolores, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. No, thanks for coming on the show. So, yes, Encanto is is the is the word of the season. Uh, we all know the songs, we all know the film, um, and by now people will know whether it won the Oscar or not, but we are currently mum the wiser. Um, can you give us a little bit of a flavour as to what, what your first thoughts were when you heard about the movie? It's, um, you know, obviously kind of overlaps with some of your research interests in Latin American representation. So what were some of your sort of initial thoughts or concerns or hopes for the film when you first heard that it was being uh, produced and commissioned? Well, always happiness if uh, if there's representation of groups that are often otherwise marginalised. So any Latin American representation is something I'm going to welcome and be happy about. And if I know that there are musicians involved who are Colombian and potentially also Latinx, then there's a point at which there's um, there's a welcoming of an excitement to see the film. So I was excited to see the film mm. with my daughters um, and, you know, just happy, really. I mean, and I'll talk a bit more about why Latinx Colombian crossover is not as problematic as it might sound, although it would be if you were homogenizing them. Because with music, there's a kind of a border crossing thing that's much more possible. Okay, cool. All right, well, we'll come to that. So I'm sensing from your answer, there is a certain amount of hesitation going on as well. And I suspect also when you've got a big studio like Disney coming across a um, a, a culture that is not necessarily theirs or is trying to represent, there is also a certain trepidation one enters into. So what were the concerns about Encanto perhaps coming into it? Okay, so, you know, you kind of asked me to think a little bit about, you know, Disney being on this kind of uh, role of progressive representations yeah. um, to their previous back catalogue, you know, that are things that are now outside the WASP experience. So they're trying not to do Pocahontas three or four and as badly as they did Pocahontas. So they've had Coco, which was great. They've had Moana, which was great too, in certain ways. Okay, so Coco was great um, because, you know, Disney's often classed with misrepresenting non-Anglo cultures and not just misrepresenting them, but demonizing them, belittling them, marginalizing them, etc. cetera. Um, but Coco was actually you know, a surprisingly authentic depiction of Mexico, really popular in Mexico and amongst Mexican-Americans in the United States too, right? Um, and it had all these kind of elements of cultural authenticity, um, you know, like the alebrijes it had, which is like the spirit animals, uh, oh, yeah. the Dia de, la, Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead, the ofrenda, which is where families put bits of their offerings to their dead relatives. All those things were really authentic. Um, And that's largely because it had, you know, a Mexican-American producer or co-director, sorry, Adrián Molina. It had a kind of cultural um, consultant, Lalo Alcaraz, who's a a Chicano cartoonist. And Chicano means Mexican-American. You know, and it also came at a time, 2017, when everyone was kind of, 
launched into the, the presidency of a new president who was kind of very much maligning Mexicans. And this was a really positive representation. So that was great. Mm-hmm. For me, who's into classical Mexican cinema, like the whole story focuses around this kind of nostalgia and love for that era, the songs of the classical Mexican cinema, the stars of the classical Mexican cinema, and how they continue to be popular in the present day. Mm-hmm. And that's all my work, really. And so that's the whole story. And Coco was great for those reasons. I mean, still, you know, still some things, you know, they did mix up some of the um, culturally authentic bits and took a few liberties. But hey, in the grand scheme of things, and this is important, Mexican-Americans and Mexicans were happy with it. And it was seen overall as an achievement and it did very well at the box office. So not to be too cynical, but I think Disney are still mining this. They're like, hmm, the Latinx population in the U.S., Loves and there's a whole of Latin America, which is a massive film market. Sure. Let's just do yeah. more of that, you know. And Moana too was actually really great too. So uh, I won't go into Moana because that's not my field, but it had Polynesian musicians writing the music. Lin Manuel Miranda also writes a song or two. You know, you've got Dwayne Johnson in it, who's sure. part Samoan. So there was a kind of like a representation and a homage to Polynesian myths. So yay! And in the line of that. You know, I was expecting maybe more from Encanto sure. than I got. It sets up a, a lot of things that I'm interested in in relation to, to computer animation. So trying to sit, situate what you've said in relation to, to where this film might fit within a broader shift within what I would call the computer animated film genre that was happening around 2017, 2018. And I think you've gestured to Trump, but also another film that we've done on the podcast, Spider-Verse, where where a lot of my work is about the generic uniformity of computer animated films. And when when a film like Coco or when a film like Spider-Verse comes along and you feel like there's something different happening, it was it was both great and terrible for me for two, for two, kind of a couple of reasons. One is, well, it sort of derails my whole point about the question of a generic uniformity but on the flip side it also confirms that what had come before was at least generic and now we've got something that's kind of doing slightly things that are slightly different so you mentioned Moana um and I mean, I'd also add to that uh, Pixar's upcoming Turning Red, Disney's Rare and the Last Dragon because these are we might want to lump Disney and Pixar in together and their their industrial relationship is very very close but there is a sense in which Pixar have made Coco and that that has tapped into something that Disney are also very keen to then tap into, which leads us down the road to, to Encanto. Um, but I think there's a lot of contemporary Pixar and contemporary Disney have sort of, Pixar especially have got a little bit of a bad rep for for lapsing into sequels and and pushing against kind of original stories. And actually it seems to be Disney that are the new Pixar in terms of maybe what they're trying to do and, and as you say, move towards different kinds of, of cultures. But as you say, there's also that issue of, you mentioned authenticity. And one of the notes I had on the film was it didn't feel in Canto like it was set dressing as much as it perhaps could have been. And there's always a rhetoric, I think, of authenticity when Disney and, and, and Pixar and any animation studio, particularly in Hollywood, are making these kinds of movies. There's often a, a special feature on the DVD that says, but we also went there and did some research and we also did go to Polynesia for a while and we also flew to Colombia. And, and you get the same kind of rhetoric of authenticity that sometimes does jar with the images on screen. But I did feel with Encanto that, that there was... What was something authentic about the film? And I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Uh, but yeah, it seems like it was trying to do something that was, there wasn't a sense of Orientalist kind of viewing of the world. There wasn't that idea of kind of outside of them. It was, it was within a culture and embracing it right from the start and we were off. And, and that I found, found was really, really kind of positive in that sense. 
Well, the thing is, it's also a Disney film and it's very familiarly a Disney film. So there is that point at which we can feel, you know, already within it. So I think it, what it's done is it's taken some of the generic elements that I think you did ask me to think about, like family and stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, it does have, um, has a Latina producer. She's not necessarily Colombian, but it does have some Colombian musical styles and singers singing, you know, specifically. And it attempts to... Yeah represent elements of Colombian topography, which is, you know, lots of different kinds. You've got Andes in Colombia, you've got kind of Amazonian jungle, you've got coast, you've got kind of very lush, semi-tropical forests, which I think it's the Choco. I think that's partly where this is. You've got kind of, you know, a million different kinds of, Colombia itself is a really varied country, you know, very racially diverse as well. So a lot of those things were kind of squashed in here and there were aspects of the architecture of kind of like maybe a paisa house or a kind of a colonial style latin american house so these are things that are recognizable if you were looking as a tourist at latin america too so it can be both familiar and yet also right. problematic you know when you're kind of grappling with some of the things it does you know to colombia you know with a representation that seems familiar only because it is feeding off several cliches and received ideas about it, you know, in that kind of a way, you know, and, you know, full disclosure, I'm not a Colombianist. I'm a Latin American film specialist who's mostly worked on Mexico, Brazil, Argentina, and Cuba. But I had, I have spent a year in Colombia when I was 2021. So that's a while ago now, right? Um, and I've read a lot of Colombian literature and seen a whole bunch of Colombian films. So I teach Colombian cinema as part of what I teach, but I've never gone there to research Colombian cinema, you know, as my thing. Mm. That's uh, that puts you a lot of uh, quite a few grades above both Chris and I. So I'm glad you're here <laughs> to provide at least you know some context to this. I wanted to talk about that kind of balancing act between um, trying to make a film that is familiar to its kind of, you know, basic, I guess, core audience that's been there since the start of the Disney studio. It's it's sort of, you know, white Anglo-Saxon mainstream appeal whilst also being culturally sensitive. And that's obviously a, an impossible balancing act to an extent in that the more specific you get, the less universal you get or, or somewhere in between the two. I guess the role of family becomes a really interesting thing to think about with this because I was struck watching the movie um, I, I liked the movie quite a bit, but I, I didn't love it. And one of the things I didn't love about it was there was this, is that the thematic of family seemed to me almost a sort of prison for the movie in that I was trying to work out what one of the things that these films seem to be doing is, is offering a kind of new gendered vision of Disney femininity. And that involves taking away the handsome prince, taking away a sort of male dominated mm -hmm. agency and allowing female characters to have female oriented goals. Moana does the same. But what they seem to be, they don't, there doesn't seem to be at the moment a way of doing that narrative within the Disney stable that doesn't then insist on family as the next important thing. It's like, it's because almost, Moana it, and Coco, it was all about their family. All about family, yeah. right? So I wondered if you could talk about that in the film, because on one hand, I think that family is so Disney. You know, what, what is more Disney than insisting on the importance of family? Mm. But on the other hand, there is certain nuances to this family in that it's a very intergenerational family. Um, there is a certain aspect of this family that I could believe spoke more specifically to its context. So I don't, did that strike you as a, a thing the film was trying to work through at all? And, and where did you sit on it? Well, 
Um, you know, one of the things that I, when I sit with my daughters and we watch movies, they're like, please be quiet, mum, because I ruin almost every film for them. <laughs> but, you know, when it, I was quite quiet. But at the end, one of the things, it's more kind of a Marxist kind of point that the film seemed to be about one family having some kind of feudal privilege that had sure. been given to them by a candle, miraculously. And in that sense, you know, that's very much the old-fashioned melodrama, telenovela kind of thing. You know, ca- poor characters only become rich by chance. You know, it's very much a thing that, you know, if we could think about melodrama as inherently Latin American coming through from its serial novels through to telenovelas, which is like Latin American soap operas, but they're different. That kind of chance arrival of wealth is something that kind of struck me as quite, quite, telenovela-like, but then the kind of feudal privilege of that family and the whole village looking up to them and and the worry about that privilege disappearing, I didn't care if their privilege disappeared. (laughs) As as an academic looking at it through a kind of a Marxist structural lens. And so for me, I I didn't like Encanto. And at the end, my kids were like, yeah, maybe that was it. We didn't really care. Because it's like, well, why do you get to live in the big house? You know, that still doesn't seem fair. And everyone suffered the violence that was kind of nebulously referred to. So la violencia was a thing that kind of broke out late 40s through the 50s. So it's kind of this massively violent period in Colombia that went on for maybe 20 or 30 years. Gabriel Garcia Marquez kind of refers to it at the edges of his his novels. Um, And that's kind of what we think is being gestured to that kills the grandfather. That means the family then needs something. I hope I'm not giving away the story. And then the candle arrives, which gives them the magic. Mm -hmm. So on that level, the family itself isn't something I was rooting for. In your average way, I was rooting for Coco's family, or I was rooting who are proletariat working class, who are just getting by, Mm -hmm. yeah, and who were worried about music as a threat. So that was kind of, I don't know why I went there, but that was my analysis. The narrative arc didn't work for me because I was just like... Well, why do you get to have the big house? Yeah. You know? <laughs> no, it's a good point because in a, yeah. in a way, <laughs> in a way, the film wants it wants to do it wants to do community, doesn't it? It wants to have that kind of end shot where the community rebuilds the house and they're all working together, and it also wants to use the family to talk about individuality and you know everyone can be themselves and all that sort of stuff. But all of it is rooted in this. Uh, yes, as long as this family gets to stay, kind of in charge right and that the, the yes. use of magic as a kind of justification for that it hadn't struck me but yeah you're quite right that is I was so outraged by it and the more I talk about it the more outraged I am <laughs> so you know so I'm saying that's why Encanto oh yay look positive representation of a Latin American country some accuracies quite a few accuracies not that many you know I'm going to shout out to Maria Elena Cepeda Angarad Valdivia and Diana Leon's boys who are three great Colombianists who could most probably eviscerate this movie <laughs> much better than I could you know okay. um but that for me the family eviscerate you know, it a bit for us. yeah yeah go ahead <laughs> right so so I told you I'm not a Colombianist, but I am an undergraduate Latin Americanist, right? So I read my kind of canonical Latin American literature, Spanish literature, whatever. And then I ended up in film in my MA. So uh, when I saw it and I saw the yellow butterflies and I saw um, the family, I'm like, wait a minute. This, this film is, it's called Encanto. And Nancy's like, what is Encanto? My daughter's doing Spanish. And they're like, Encanto can mean enchantment. And I'm like, wait a minute, it means magic. And I'm like, oh, no. Mm -hmm. 
Right. So you asked me about magical realism. Um, and I think the film wants to actively invoke magical realism, right? Or an idea of what the filmmakers think it is. Yeah. Because they see that as Latin American and indeed specifically Colombian, right? So, you know, I've read reviews that have talked about Guillermo del Toro as a magical realist director. And I want to like tear my hair out, okay? Because mm. in his big novel, 100 Years of Solitude, which is one of those books that everyone says they've read in English, mm. but they haven't, but they might have done, right? You've got a familia, the Buendia family, and they're a big family that go on for generations and generations. So tick, Encanto seems to fit that one. And then you've also got yellow butterflies, which happen. They kind of follow a character around in uh, 100 Years of Solitude. I want to say Aureliano Buendia, but I might be wrong, right? So I'm like, oh, yes, yellow butterflies and that. Okay. But then this isn't magical realism because, and this is something, Chris, you can maybe help with. You were talking a bit about the Disney register, right? Yeah. And in the Disney register, everything is fan everything is fantastical and everything is exaggerated. Animals are anthropomorphized. Things happen. And we accept that as normal because we are yeah. socialized to watch Disney in a certain way. Yeah. Animals talk. Things happen. Right. So the realist register is really hard for us to find. But magical realism isn't just about magic. It's about magical realism. So you have to have realism. So really, you'd have to have an, a cartoon that was trying to replicate one of those realist Latin American directors like Fernando Aimke or Carlos Regadas. I don't know if you've seen any of them, but they make these very slow, quotidian, realist films, right? Or Alonso from Argentina, where, where people are just going about their daily business, you know, chopping down a tree takes as long to chop down a tree as it would take to chop down a tree on film. So for something to be magical realist, and I wrote this down, you have to have the matter of fact everyday register as the dominant. Right. And then the magic has to kind of break into it and just be accepted by everyone as normal. Oh, yeah, here he comes with his yellow roses. But from the beginning of Encanto, you're like, tell us about the magic of your family. What's so great about your family? Oh, look, he's got a gift. And it's all crazy and accepted as magic and exaggerated. And when so when Antonio comes to be able to listen to animals, you're like... Mm. Because already in Disney, animals talk anyway. So there's a level at which there's no quotidian. I'm trying to hope I'm explaining it to you well. No, no, yeah. no. This is this is really make made what you were saying, Dolores, made sense insofar as I was I was writing. There was something about the film that didn't quite work for me, and I couldn't figure out what it was. And 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 so some of the things, just bouncing off of some of the things that you um, that you said, I think you're right that there's something. I think this goes back to this issue of the family and that. The absence of complete family structures historically within Disney and uh, even into to Pixar's films, and now I would also say DreamWorks and, and lots of other contemporary studios, they like uh, an incomplete family because what it allows them to do is to play with broader issues of surrogacy and friends as family and actually your family are the community and all this kind of stuff. But there has been a shift, as, as Alex was saying, towards towards the importance of actually family and thinking about who you're in Coco, who your real father is and who, and, 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 in, and in Canto, that this very complex, and there are lots of moving parts to this, to this family, just as there's lots of moving parts to this house in the film. But I was trying to kind of get my head around how all these bits fitted together. And, and, you know, in certain terms of some of the characters, I thought they looked, looked great. And, and um, as a family, I believed lots of the, lots of the relationships, but that then prevents 
the filmmakers to be able to play with that idea of sort of surrogacy and it sort of do, does something new with with the question of family but then you're right that it it prioritizes and makes exceptional this particular family as the bearer of the film's magical realist qualities without really identifying as you said the everyday matter of the, the normality upon which or into which the magic intrudes but it's not that's not magical realism i don't know if they are selling it as magical realism i think they are that's yeah. not magical realism i yeah. know they have they've done they've done the family dynasty and they've done the yellow butterflies and i'm like that's not magical realism you know that's not magical realism and it made me quite annoyed it's because for disney disney magic isn't a discourse it's a it's a spectacle isn't it you know when they yeah, say yeah. come to fantasy land fantasy land isn't a way of interrogating the world it's a, it's a way of enjoying you know a ride you know so and that's what and magic is different to magical realism isn't it alex sorry wouldn't you argue that fantasy is different to magical realism absolutely you absolutely i mean we've had that we've we, we, i'm having an echo we had felicity gee on the podcast a few uh months ago and we had exactly this debate between magical realism and fantasy and it's very difficult to find any example of mainstream animation or any any kind of popular story that really does offer a nice example of magical realism. But, yeah, yeah. But, I think that's what, I think there was a mistake in some meeting somewhere where no one had read 100 Years of Solitude, which is shows that everyone should read it, right? Sure, Guillermo yeah. del Toro thing. I mean, what people think magical realism means is, is a fantasy story with an element of, um, I don't know, allegorical weight to it. That seems to be what mm -hmm. most people mean by it. And that isn't what it is, but that is what it sort of has become in popular parlance. So it seems to mean that, you know, I'm sure if you asked a Disney animator this, they would say, well, we were aiming at the emotional truth of it all and all that kind of stuff, which, you know, fine. But yeah. but um, th that isn't what this film's doing. So it's, it's, it's certainly not engaging in that register of magical realism it's there's no realism for magic to break into does that make that sort of by magic we mean spectacle we mean big shiny yeah, it's all spectacles <laughs> sure, sure, you know sure, even sure. you couldn't even look like say songs versus narrative there's no um there's no point at which mundanity or everyday qualities exist in encanto you know yeah magic house made for them by a, a magic candle yeah well, well actually that brings me to a couple i suppose I was expecting towards the end of the film when, so it reminded me of that. There's a Simpsons episode where, or I think it's maybe it's Family Guy, but they basically rebuild. Oh no, it is. I think it's the Simpsons where they rebuild Ned Flanders' house. Like the community comes together and builds the house, and it's like terrible. Um, and they do, and they do a similar joke in Family Guy where they have this kind of montage of of the the main characters coming together and, and redecorating a pub and then they just turn it into a mess and they go, we we had no training for this and we really shouldn't have done this. There was something... The all those TV makeover shows, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Radical home makeover or whatever yeah, that they yeah, have. Yeah, well, yeah. I thought, so when, they, when the community towards the end kind of comes together and rebuilds the house, I thought it was going to be rebuilt without the magic and, and, and the point was that the magic doesn't come from this otherworldly space. It kind of comes from the community and, and that then... Kind of could have the, the movie, yeah, yeah, but also reduces their exceptionality. But actually, what the film then does at the end is is reinstates their exceptionality by reintegrating magic into the world. I mean, I, and also you mentioned music very briefly. I thought that the lack of the sort of quotidian and the the normality, the lack of normality, was evident in the musical numbers. I think all of the musical numbers, apart from the last two, which occur after the kind of house has. Um, 
kind of disintegrated and the house has kind of crumbled. All of the musical numbers up to that point occur in this strange abstract space, which Disney has done previously, but only intermittently. So it did it a lot in Aladdin where the genie's friend like me. Because of the genie, uh, yeah. Because of the genie. And it happens in The Princess and the Frog um, uh, where a couple of the musical numbers are done against the backdrop of the of the mythical. And, and because of that, you get these really abstract geometric non-spaces. Don't you think it's this, it's kind of internal? I think this is internal colonialism. So to go a bit further with the magical realism and apply yeah, it, yeah. I think it's really colonialist to call a nation magic and mm. therefore okay and not in need of structural help or fairness or you know anything you know it's it's kind of those magical solutions um in in magical realism it's it's a really political novel that's all hundred uh, years soldier it's a really political novel that's acknowledging the damage that colonialism and the United Fruit Company has done to Colombia including massacres and you know, things like that, you know, so it's really aware of all those things. And to just blanket kind of apply magical realism uncritically to a country or to the Louisiana swamp in uh, mm -hmm. Princess and the Frog is, yeah, probably, yeah. you know, because Louisiana itself is sometimes seen as this kind of internal other, this kind of underdeveloped space within 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 the US, French and slightly different and maybe a bit Northern Caribbean and, you know, we'll just, you know, and the Katrina kind of backlash against yeah. people who, who got flooded out of their homes or killed was like, well, they shouldn't have lived there, you know. It's their fault for being underdeveloped. We'll just deny that's even part of the US. I think that's what's going on with some of those abstractions and moves into kind of non-real space i think it's um i think it's rooted in a kind of a colonialist perspective that coco didn't have you know and i think it's a i i feel it is more an outside look at colombia oh. mainly because they misuse misuse and misapply magic realism so badly and i think that point you've made about the abstract space i hadn't thought about it till you started to talk about the musical numbers kind of going out of what even though it's not that real. It's real enough in terms of the film. Yeah. You know, suddenly she's in a coliseum, Louisa, when she's doing her number. And, you know, you're right. And they go suddenly there. Yeah, it's not even a physical space. Yeah. And, and, the, and the musical numbers up to the point where the house is destroyed, because it occurs in this abstract space, it kind of really makes the, the most of animations, I suppose, metaphorical or a symbolic function. It sort of visualizes the lyrics and, and does a... As part of, of animation's medium specificity, let's say, it revels in transformation and metamorphosis and that kind of culture of quick change by taking these characters and placing them in lots and lots of different settings. The two musical numbers after the house is disintegrated, I think are the only two where the music and the songs take place in in the diegetic space because they're about the building of the, the rebuilding of the world. And I was really struck by the bombardment or the visual bombardment of all these. Um, colours and I suppose what I know David Borwell when he talks about these computer animated films talks about a mise-en-scene that is overstuffed everything was overstuffed and then the last few musical numbers as part that were part or folded into the narrative of reconstruction as the house is rebuilt um, seem to seem to be of a different visual order or a different register okay. um, and I thought based on what you were saying I thought that was a really and this goes back to maybe the fantasy or the magical realist element that I was thinking, is this film... Uh, I'm calling it the magical realist element because we've acknowledged that it's not. It's what they think is magical realist. Exactly, yeah. A sort of 
yeah, an imagined view of magical realism magical based realism on land. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yes, but it I was is that kind of you know, there's a point at which you know Latin America was often tropicalized and made into this kind of space in the 40s. Yeah. which was all about the good neighbour and la, 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 and we'd get Carmen Miranda, who would be any Latin nationality you needed her to be, you know, and there's sure. a point at which this movie almost does that. There's a level at which, yes, Lin-Manuel Miranda gets his musical styles quite right. You know, he does get cumbia and vallenato, which are two Colombian modes. He gets Carlos Vives to sing, and he is a big Colombian star. He sings the vallenato. You know, and it's like, oh, and it's all a big party and it's got the accordion, the accordion music. Do you remember that? That's the very specifically mm. Colombian music. That's me playing an accordion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, so list, bits- list, listeners are, uh, are missing a treat, but yeah. <laughs> I'm lying, but, 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 you know, there's a point at which there's a homogenization, which is slightly problematic mm. of, of that magical space down there that's Latin America that for me feels regressive rather than progressive about Latin America. But on another level, people might say, well, it's not violent. So, you know, la la la, it's a little bit more positive but there can be problems in a positive representation too that's really that's really interesting because i was thinking about kind of colonialist colonialist discourses that have often weighed down these kinds of of animated films where they're but they're engaging with the other and 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 also this comes out of a a challenge in the classroom to try and teach certain kinds of cartoons on this basis Um, so thinking about colonialist discourses i suppose objectively or, or box ticking wise you could say well it avoids we could say that it avoids in terms of tropes of empire animalization infantilization space and light and dark it doesn't try and it, this isn't a, a, an other that is irrational and um, peripheral and, and chaotic but actually it seems from what you're saying that the use of fantasy and the attribution of fantasy under the guise of magical realism to this community is part of its colonialist discourse it can be it can be problematic because it's not rooting it anyway and it's also just you know taking something that's so kind of inherently colombian and misapplying it in a kind of a sad way that makes you feel like oh that seems quite cynical to take the flowers i feel like they did so well with coco where they did their homework that they just kind of jumped into encanto with doing less homework lin-manuel miranda who is flawless in my opinion wrote some great (laughs) songs Mm. okay and he has you know, all these great, he's got, you know, he's got, oh, Sebastian Yatra, who sings Dos Oruguitas, which is nominated for the Oscars. Sure. You know, these two Colombian singers, you've got Colum- you've got Maluma in it. You've got John Leguizamo. You've got yeah. Maria Cecilia Bolero, who plays the granny. John Leguizamo is Bruno, you know. Mm. All these songs have also been done in Spanish as well. So, you know, the song is ready-made for the Latin America. This this movie is ready-made for the Latin American market. You know, it's already there and it's already great for the Latinx market. And the other music that we have in there, like the salsa, which is more urban US Latinx um, and other kinds of musical styles, these do, this isn't part of the colonialism, the fact that there's a hum, lots of different musical styles, because Latin American rhythms, although they might be bounded in national identities, like the vallenato and the cumbia, they do cross borders, and people dance to salsa in Colombia, and people play vallenato in the States, and, and, and reggaeton is in it as well, you know, the song that Luisa does that you were talking about, about about feeling pressure and all the donkeys kind of dance around her. That's her yeah. reggaeton. You know, there's, those are good things. I don't want to kind of like, I feel like I've been yeah. eviscerating too much. I just want to quickly get in some nice things. Well, and I guess that comes back to there's there's what the film is saying and what the film is doing and the effective register versus the kind of thematic register aren't always the same thing. And often we can find a lot of 
positives in popular culture, or at least, you know, um, slightly more progressive potential in popular culture if one focuses on the effective rather than the, uh, the narrative. Because actually, you know, I get the sense that those things are the things that are resonating with audiences. Yeah. As, well, it seems to be at least by the success Ooh, of representation the music. Representation is resonating. Mm. So in the same way that West Side Story by Steven Spielberg has resonated well, Encanto's resonated well in that it's showing Afro-Cubans, uh, no, sorry, Afro-Colombians, and it's showing, um, you know, more indigenous-looking Colombians, and it's showing European-looking Colombians, and it's kind of acknowledging their diversity. Um, and West Side Story was, you know, mm-hmm. a properly Latinx base cast and not you know greek actors with brown face on sure. as in the original okay but it's still by a white director and a lot of puerto ricans were like why the hell remake it you know why can't we make our own movie that's about something else rather than remake this kind of cherished icon you know and there's that's a really valid point too so the positives are representation of of previously marginalized groups but why but potentially why can't they tell their own story so lin manuel is telling the story yeah potentially you know we need more Adrian Molinas we need more Adrian Molinas I don't know what he was doing while Encanto was being made but he might have been like also pulling his hair out I'm not sure maybe he yeah, was just yeah. like I've had my glory I'm just going to sit back I'm not sure how Disney works I don't think they kind of it, it seems that there's this kind of what is it you know, they, there's this new production model, model of these cultural consultants they they sort of get in mm. don't they when I worry about that as a because it's very much egged up in the marketing, right? If they don't worry, yeah. we've done our homework. Yeah, 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 yeah. A bunch of local historians to tell us that this is the thing we should be doing and all this kind of stuff. And that speaks to me of some sort of, you know, colonial power structures. It's, it could it seems, be, yeah. But it also, and it also seems to me, you know, just, you know, ultimately the rubricon they won't cross is that let the writers and directors just be like, be Colombian. Um, <laughs> Apparently, apparently that isn't what you need to do. What you need to do is establish a whole infrastructure so the white men don't do the wrong things. Again. Don't do racism. We're going to teach yeah. you how not to do it. So we're going to have five people over there tell you just checking that you're not being racist at any point, but yeah. rather than just let them do it. Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. And and you know, West Side Story did have a lot of Puerto Rican. Um, it had academics because I know one, and they were all asked to sign NDAs. You know, like. You know, and they did all kind of get together and, and West Side Story doesn't have some of the dodgy lyrics, you know, about this island, all the hurricanes blowing and all about the population. It got rid of some of those primitivist and colonialist stereotypes uh-huh. about, about Puerto Rico and it made the story less unequal. You know, so that the jets and the sharks were more and, you know, the sharks weren't portrayed as kind of dark and savage and you know shark-like they were they were you know more and the jets themselves were proper hungry and dispossessed rather than just kind of white and blonde and a bit athletic you know Mm -hmm. there was a there was a a greater sense of equality or that you know west side story still had some problems but it was better and you know the puerto ricans weren't dancing on a roof they were in the street and there was latin-owned businesses and it was a you know a more better representation so well done Seems to be, there's a lot more to say about that, but yeah, yeah I do think the the consultant thing. Well, you know, Lala Alcaraz on Coca seems to do really well, but you also had Adrián Molina and various other people. So, um, and the songwriters, I think one of the songwriters is Latinx uh, for Coca, but not both. I think they're a songwriting team. The husband's Anglo or US. Is the other final frontier language? Um, briefly, you know, it also, if you're going to tell a Colombian story, does it have to be in the English language? You know, I mean, well, the I was... answer is commercially yes. 
or at least I suspect that's what Disney think. Um, but is that a, is that a problem, or is that a, is that something that we can kind of swallow? As well, I would imagine that dubbed versions are already circulating in Latin America because it's much easier to dub a cartoon, isn't it? And there were, mm-hmm. you know, not dubbed. I mean, like. And it doesn't have to be dubs, were there? You know, they've got different actors doing it. And that's been happening for a long time at Disney. You know, that Disney, it's much easier. I know uh, the Ukrainian president did, I can't remember, but he like Paddington. Paddington. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So there's, there's a point at which that's, you know, Disney's been doing that for a long time. So it's almost like the Joanville studios that existed in Paris in the 30s or Hollywood, Spanish language and German and French language versions that all happened at the coming of sound. This has all been made possible again. Right. So this is already happening. But, you know, the co- the Encanto we saw was kind of sprinkled with a bit of uh, Spanish. Some of the songs were completely Spanish. Carlos Vives sang in yeah. Spanish. Um, Sebastián Yatra sang in Spanish, you know, in the movie that I saw on. I can't remember. We bought it. I think we must have bought it on Amazon. I'm sure. I don't know. Do you remember what you saw? Or I watched one on Disney Plus. Yeah, so did I. There was some Spanish language. Some songs. Was there like a bit of dialogue and songs in Spanish, or there was some dialogue in in Spanish? Yeah, I was thinking because the issue of dubbing is obviously a thorny issue in, in animation, and I could definitely go off on one, but I I won't. But a lot of stars would dub themselves in other languages. So um, Antonio Banderas would dub Puss in Boots in multiple ver- international versions of of Shrek Two or Shrek Three or whatever. Um, but that would give the impression that the the US version was just one of many and actually it's really important to have these actors that that um, speak in their native language that may cause a bit of jarring with regards to the sound image relations but these it's not uncommon for these films to be re well they, don't, they just do it on the cheap they just go pretend you're speaking in Spanish they just could, so. yep but even but even you know I know Lewis, well, Lewis yeah, Antonio Banderas would be able to do the Spanish version of course I'm just saying I have no idea how good is French or Italian or any other well thing. so Lewis Hamilton um, who does plays a, a car in one of the Cars films he dubbed himself in English German and French so there's a whole kind of industry and, and there are writers uh, Colin Montgomery is is one who writes on the sort of um, vocal performances across national borders of, of um, Pixar and, and Disney films um, and the way in which they are sold local to local audiences specifically through kind of dubbing practices um, but it's also not uncommon for these films to literally be reanimated so there are culturally specific elements to certain films that are replaced um, according to the country of release and so, they get it all wrong well so it's, uh, there's one in, a good example is um, Inside Out where I think R- there's a moment where Riley recoils because of a topping of a pe- on a pizza and that topping was changed depending on which country the film was shown in because some foods are kind of considered le- so in our case I think in the US broccoli. UK cons- broccoli but in other countries it was like green peppers and jalapenos and things like this so there, there are instances where films, and this goes back to, to Snow White. People have written on the, the different versions of Snow White because of anything with signage has to be reanimated in the local language and all these kinds of things. So, so dubbing is one part of that, and computer animated films have certainly made it easier and the process more flexible to do this kind of dubbing and, and to, to have stars voice animated characters years after they die paul newman can appear several years after he dies in the third cars because they have the sound sound um files in an archive somewhere and they can cut it together so i'm really interested in that kind of posthumous vocal performance um but it does dub dubbing is part of that and there are people more well versed than me on on the actual industrial structures of we expect stars to sound a certain way but 
and, and and therefore like the Mexican Tom Cruise can only ever dub Tom Cruise films and it would be weird if he was suddenly voicing Mr. Potato Head and there are all these kind of local dubbing practices within animation that that have that kind of um right. yeah yeah, yeah, yeah really they're going to do a franchise of several of several ones wow so I guess we should um start thinking about wrapping up um i've got a couple of things on yeah animated houses but i just wondered alex do you have any final final thoughts we've just been talking about uh, magical realism we've talked talked about the kind of cultural specificity of of, of of magical realism in relation to a potential oriental interlist or colonialist gaze that seems to to permeate the film but with your fantasy hat on there isn't magical realism anything to to kind of talk about um well i don't know we sort of touched on it without being as explicit about it as, as we could have i think I think the film isn't magical realist. I think uh, we've made that quite clear. I think the film is interested in fantasy uh, and the way it uses fantasy is largely to kind of tell these stories of identity so that it's it's what we might call in the fantasy theory trade a narcissistic fantasy and that not because it's hugely indulgent and um, hubristic, but because it's about the self. Yeah, these are stories, as much as this is a story supposedly about family, it's a, it's fantasies about the self, whether it be the sister with super strength who has to please everybody, um, that the sister who's worried about exterior exterior image and perfection. There are The way it evokes spectacle on screen through fantasy is to tell a series of kind of, um, or to offer a series of mediations around the human body, exterior identity versus interior identity and all these kind of things. So in that ways, it is quintessentially Disney because it's a story about being yourself uh, and the fantastical way in which one can do that. So, yeah. Well, well. so I can't believe we've got to 90 odd episodes and you've just thrown in narcissistic fantasy for the first time. Oh, and yeah? it's now, I'm, now, I'm now thinking about this in relation, because I suppose with my animation hat on, uh, and then I I will talk about animated houses, but with my animation hat on, this side of kind of being yourself, the the point is is that um, the the young, I suppose the the whole if the whole film was about the the magical family, the fact that Mirabelle is herself, and the the point is is that herself. Uh, uh, the film is all about the acquisition of fantasy through these series of powers and her whole narrative trajectory is that she doesn't have the kinds of powers that are bestowed on other members of her family. And for a long time, the film is interested or the film shows us how she is not interested in being herself and she wishes she wasn't herself. And actually there's no real resolution to that because she still doesn't really gain magical powers in the same way. And 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 so I think the film is a little bit ambivalent actually around its Disneyness in regards to, to what it means to, to be yourself, because for a large portion of the film she isn't that interested in in or, or, or finds or finds the fact that she doesn't have magical powers a real weakness that she's trying to to kind of constantly navigate in a family that is framed as highly exceptional mm. yeah that's fair i think what i think what the film does though with the fantasy is it, is it uses that to it not to to display the self but to enact the kind of um tension within the self and and i guess mm. in that way in that way she has less of that because she hasn't got these sort of overt displays. I hadn't thought about the fact that actually, you know, you were right. I was waiting for that moment where she's given the magical power and the magical power is love or something like that. Yep. Um, and that actually never comes. So that's a nice little almost nuance that the film kind of leaves in there. Go on then, Chris, talk to us about animated houses. Well, what am I, I may, I'm thinking about this, I may have shoehorned this or crowbarred into it in, in a previous episode, but one of my very first pieces of writing was on the, the anthropomorphism of houses across a cross section of animation animated uh films and it kind of begins with the shorts um earliest shorts in in europe emil cole's phantasmagory that has this this house transform into an elephant at one point um 
uh, fast forward to, to Up, probably the best known example of an animated house. And one of the things I thought about when watching this film was this is not a house that's going to metamorphose into the, the Carl Fredrickson's deceased wife, Ellie. It always is and remains a house. Mm. And the way that he anthropomorphizes it is to project her humanity into it. And he talks to the house as if it was, as if it was his wife. We've arrived, Ellie, and so forth. In this case, we have the magic almost going back to that early, early register of anthropomorphic houses by playing with the flexibility, that kind of plasmatic flexibility of, of, of houses by having this actually take on the, the, a persona, yeah. if you like. So I thought that was a nice comparison between different ways in which sentience could be constructed through architecture. I would say early stuff and even something like Monster House, where the house is the personific- literally the personification uh, of a character's deceased wife uh, and then something like up where the house maintains, that's the word, it's kind of structural integrity. It's integrity as a house. And then you have this, this film encounter, which is sort of caught between. It is personified, but uh, yeah, still has enough form, houseness within its sort of anthropomorphic register. So I just thought that was a, yeah, an interesting it, way it's of, spon- of... It's personified and also kind of exoticized or something, isn't it? Like there are these cavernous spaces in the house that you're not quite sure whether they're supposed to be literal or metaphorical or yeah. this kind of thing. It reminds me a little bit of, of the, the the children's picture book rather than the film of Where the Wild Things Are, where um, right, right, Max right. is sent to bed without supper and kind of goes to the land of the wild things. And it's always a little bit ambiguous whether what he's actually doing is just going to his wardrobe. Uh, you know. Yes. Um, so yeah, there is a certain kind of, I don't know, emotional energy to, to, to all that. It's interesting. I had, I did think about up. I did think um, that was a nice comparison to make. Yeah. 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 And just to, just to go back to something that Dolores said, but also this idea of kind of magical realism land. I have since before playing, before watching the film, I have since played a very small and free to download video game based on Encanto that has a series of levels through each of the doors. And it reminded me of some of the criticisms of inside out, which is set inside an 11 year old girl's mind, but is equally, also about the spectacle and destruction of a theme park, mm. essentially. Um, and there was something very, I don't want to say video game-esque about Encanto, but certainly I could see I could see a lot of these different, behind each door, which is representative of each, each of the characters' magical powers, there was certainly something around, this would make a great series of rooms mm. at a theme park or levels on a video game. Sure. And I thought that was, that maybe tied into some of the things um, that you were saying about the the... Yeah, the, the treatment of magic in relation to to realism and and the, how, the way that the film constructs an almost imaginary understanding of what it thinks magical realism is and and how that might tie into a potentially slightly insidious commercialization of fantasy through a, this through this door we have this and through this door we have this and um, yeah it, the kind of spatializing caught me caught me off guard really because I it reminded me of playing this this video game where one completes com- completes different levels based on the individual character. But anyway, uh, right, yes. I guess we should wrap up. Yes, Dolores, any final thoughts? Well, I kind of, I just, um, I wanted to emphasise that, you know, music on Crossing Borders is great and I love the whole bits of that, but there's so many problems with the film and the big thing is magical realism is not what they think it is. And that's, that that, that is most probably problematic to me. And also my feelings about the family and their privilege. No, no, absolutely. Mm. Well, Doris, thanks so much thank for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very yeah. much. Thank you for being receptive to my evisceration, which wasn't really <laughs> no, no. an evisceration. It was good to hear your perspectives and I'll hear more from you when I hear you later. So thank you very much. Thank, thank you, you very, very much, much, Dolores. Thank-
As always, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research. Um, you can also use that to email us, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research uh, at gmail.com. If there are some terms we've discussed on the podcast, you'd like more uh, discussion over post-colonialism, magical realism, discourse, there's that word again. Um, by all mm-hmm. means, uh, send us an email with the suggestions for a footnote episode and we'll cover it in the in-between weeks on the show. Uh, and of course, you can also visit fantasy-animation.org for all our latest blog posts and our archive of podcasts. Um, check out our episodes on Coco uh, and Moana, which were both mentioned on this show. But otherwise, that's been us for another episode. Uh, this episode was produced and edited by Leon Waldo. and We'll see you next time. Bye.